Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 9 this morning. And I guess this is the last Sunday of, of 2015, and it's always a privilege to, to have the, the opportunity to, to preach God's Word uh, to you. And with that being said, I, I was thinking about just what it was I was going to be preaching, and I, I settled in on Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 2 through 7. And the reason I did that is many times we, we read it a lot during Advent season, but I, I don't know if I've actually ever preached it. Actually, this is going to be my first time preaching an Old Testament prophet, so, so bear with me as we go through the, the book of Isaiah here. But in the, book of, uh, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you remember uh, the, the book Return of the King, it details the, the rise of Aragorn to be the, the new king of Gondor. Gondor had been underneath stewards for centuries uh, in this fictional work, and, and it was kind of doing okay as a kingdom, but the kingdom of Mordor was out there, just that, that ever-present threat. And the people of Gondor were longing for their king to return to overthrow the kingdom of Mordor and to establish a golden age of humanity. So why draw your attention uh, to that fictional account? Well, it's, it's a similar expectation that the people of Israel were having in Isaiah chapter 9. So our, our passage today is, is Israel's hopeful expectation for this new king. In the, in the line of the kings of Judah. So let's go ahead and read Isaiah chapter 9. We'll pick up in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there's a a flow to this prophecy that that Isaiah has here in, in this particular chapter. And it's this. It's that God's people rejoice in the light of God's deliverance. God's peace and God's king for God's glory. Now I want you to notice the repetition of God's because God is the the actor in this passage. Uh, Humanity isn't really doing anything here. It's just God as the actor who's who's, uh, arranging his, his great salvation. So when we're, when we're looking at biblical prophecy, there's kind of a rule of, of Bible interpretation that we need to, to keep in mind. And there's, there's this sense of double fulfillment. So often when we look at Old Testament prophets in particular, there's a, an immediate fulfillment, but then also a, a future fulfillment down the line. So the way this was explained to me uh, in school, the way that we talked about it in school, it was like a, a mountain range. 
And so if I was looking at a mountain range, I would have like a, a nearby smaller mountain that I, was, that I was seeing and describing. But behind that mountain, there's a, an even larger and even greater mountain behind it. So the same focus, the same gaze that the prophet would have is not only just looking at that smaller mountain, but also that large mountain. And so that's also kind of what, what is kind of going on uh, in biblical prophecy. Or maybe if that doesn't help you understand what's going on here, uh, actually my wife said, hey, you know, you can go ahead and use this as an example. Uh, I was officiating a game up in Fleming, uh, a varsity basketball game, and I blew my whistle, and so did two of my other partners. So we had a triple whistle on the same play. And so we got together, and we were trying to figure out what in the world was going on. And I had, uh, I had a... a a charge, my other partner had a, had a block, and my other partner had a travel. All in the same place. So if you ever wonder why you get frustrated as fans, there you go. You have three officials, and we couldn't even agree on, on what we had. But it was just different perspectives on the, on the same, same place. So often, sometimes when we hear the prophecy, it's the, it's the same prophecy, but, but we'll see different perspectives, and there's different fulfillments to the same prophecy. So, so how is this? in Isaiah chapter 9. Well, it begins, it says, from darkness to light. It's an opportunity for Israel, for Judah, to rejoice. You've got to understand that the times that this prophecy, they were living in a kingdom of darkness. For their, for their king at this time was the wicked king Ahaz. Now, you might not be familiar with King Ahaz. You can read about him in 2 Kings 16. But he was known as, a, as one of the most kings that Israel ever had. Um, for example, he sacrificed his firstborn son to a pagan god. Am I bumping my cord? Down? Alright. Let's see if that works a little better. I was hearing bumping and that was driving me nuts. <laughs> Alright, so, so wicked king Ahaz, yes, so he had sacrificed his... Well, let's try this again. Alright. So wicked King Ahaz, he had sacrificed his firstborn son on, a, on an altar to a, to a pagan de- deity. And he also openly and actively engaged in idolatry. And he encouraged idolatry among the people of Judah. So one of the main reasons Ahaz did this is he wanted to prove himself to be a loyal vassal to the state of Assyria. See, the political and military climate of the, t- the time was, had kind of this pro-Assyria and anti-Assyria forces that were going on. Uh, so Judah, prior to Ahaz, was neutral in, in this. They were kind of like, you know what, they're trying to be Switzerland. They're like, we're not going to get involved. Uh, we're we're going to be neutral in this engagement. However, Ahaz was getting outside pressure put on him to join an anti-Assyria coalition of kings and kingdoms so that they could stand against the superpower of Assyria. So they, so they found themselves at one point in their history surrounded by the northern kingdom of Israel, the Edomites, and the Syrians, not the Assyrians, but the Syrians. They were surrounding Israel, joined forces on King Ahaz saying, hey, you need to join us or... So this was their response in Isaiah 7-2. This is what we were told what was going on. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. So the question facing Ahaz then was, are you going to be pro or anti-Assyria? You know, which way are you going to go? Are you going to support Assyria or are you going to support us against, against Assyria? So, so what are you going to do? So Isaiah... 
he's like, you know what, this is kind of the wrong question to be, to be asking. He, he's at the beginning of his ministry, as goes to Ahaz and, and basically says, look, you're not to be for Assyria or against Assyria, but rather you're to be pro-God. But what, what did Ahaz do? Well, we, we read his response in 2 Kings 16, 7 through 8. Read this. So Ahaz sent messengers to, I'm going to say Mr. T, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the, the king of Assyria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz, so Ahaz not only says, all right, hey, A, so Assyria, I want you to be my, my king to, for, and us to be your vassal state, but he also pays them off. He gives them a, a great sum of money kind of as, as tribute to show himself a loyal vessel. And to kind of further his alliance with Assyria, that's when all the idolatry comes in. So he goes up to Assyria, kind of sees what they're doing for their worship, and brings back that worship, and his uh, pagan worship inside the temple grounds. So it wasn't just enough that he was doing idolatry there. If, if we were here in Isaiah saying that, oh, he's about King Ahaz and the idolatry that he's brought in. And yeah, we need this kingdom of light to come in and to, to purge out this, this darkness. And yet, and yet for us, we'd be thinking, okay, the Israelites would be thinking, okay, this is Hezekiah. Because after Ahaz is Hezekiah, he's a godly king who reforms much of what Ahaz has done. But even Hezekiah in his old age begins to think that, you know, obedience. So who are you the more like? Are you like, you know, King Ahaz who, when we have outside pressure put on us, we begin to seek man-centered ways to kind of deal with outside pressure? Or are we like Hezekiah who maybe good things to begin with, had obedience at first, and now begin to think, you know what, because I've obeyed God, God owes me. Which one could we be more like? See, you know, Hezekiah then, he also appoints us to a, a more true king who's going to usher into this permanent kingdom of light in the middle of darkness. And we got to remember throughout the Old Testament and even New Testament, light was often symbolic for the presence. Remember when being led out of light. That was one of the, the ways that he uh, led Israel through his presence. So, God, so how is God going to, to do this? How is he going to bring the people out of great darkness? His presence to shine darkness. Now, Julie and I, for a season, we worked uh, in outdoor education. When we worked in outdoor education, we did... At that freak kids out, which we liked freaking kids out. Um, but what we, we would do device. So they had a flashlight, we took it. They had a cell phone, we took it. Even a glove things at all. So we had It just in case. The point of this was for our eyes to, uh, to adjust to this darkness so that we could understand and, and, and see just what it was like to, to really see. Wow. I don't know what I'm doing today. 
so anyway, so we're, we're trying to, to work on, on this and trying to have, have this utter darkness. And with this darkness, the kids are supposed to walk on this trail uh, in total darkness. And, and the interesting thing about, about this is many kids were, okay, you know, this is, this is fine. This is kind of cool. I've never done this before. And there were other kids that were, you know, scared of the dark and were terrified of this. But after we got done doing this individual night hike, we gathered everybody together, and at this point our eyes are so well adjusted to the dark that we, that, you know, we could see actually pretty well in the darkness. But then what we would do, just to kind of show them just kind of a visual, is we just had a simple lighter. And we just flipped that lighter on, and everybody would be like, whoa, it's like a spotlight, because we were so adjusted that's kind of the picture that Isaiah is giving us here, is that we have a, a people who are wandering and stumbling around in darkness, and then a, a, a light explodes onto the scene. And who is this great light? Well, it's none other than Jesus. John 1, 4 through 5 says this, In him was life, that's Jesus, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, you know, Jesus came to deliver us from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. Man. Roger, what am I doing? Try, see, it, see if I can pull it out. All right. We'll see if that's better. Sorry, guy. You know, this is like a... I'm, this is about ready to be a comedy show soon. I'm going, to use, I'm going to use Doug's mic. All right, so we just got done reading 1 John 4 through 5. Uh, so Jesus, he came to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. Uh, and Peter, he would say this in 1 Peter 2.9. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or Paul says this, Colossians 1.13-14. He has delivered us from a domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, the point is God sent his son, Jesus, to rescue God's people out of darkness and into light. So God's kingdom of light is this opportunity and privilege for us to rejoice. That's what Isaiah says here, that it's, a, it's an, an increase of joy, and we're to rejoice before God as, be, as in the time of harvest. And so he gives us three ways on how God's going to, to transfer us out of this kingdom of darkness into this kingdom of life. And the first thing is this, that God's deliverance from oppressors. If you look in verse, in verse 4, we read, For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And so, Ju- so what he's thinking of here is Judah's oppressors. You know, for example, we had those kingdoms that were surrounding Judah at this time that were putting pressure on them to join their coalition against Assyria. But also we had the, the world superpower of Assyria at the time. And they were feeling threatened by Assyria and they were oppressing Israel. But not only did they have the, the two the, the kingdoms that were outside of Israel, but they were also being oppressed from within. For they had 
wicked King Ahaz, who was doing evil things to his own people. And so they were suffering from three enemies, and, and we as well. We suffer from, from three enemies. We have three oppressors as well, and that would be Satan, the flesh, and the world. Jesus says, John eight thirty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who, sin, who commits sin is a slave to sin. You see, when, when a person sins, we're in the kingdom of darkness, and this kingdom is one of oppression. It's not a friendly kingdom, but it's rather one of slavery. And sinners are slaves to sin, and we, we serve the devil, and we give in to the world. Jesus says, John eight forty four, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is not truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. So again, Jesus is explaining not only is that person a slave to sin, but also the devil. We are also serving a kingdom, a false kingdom, a kingdom of darkness, and that leader is, is Satan. And so there's, there's no real middle ground here. You can't, you're not going to be in the kingdom of light and in the kingdom of darkness. You're either in, in one or the other. You know, you're either serving God or you're serving Satan. You're either sinning or you're living righteously. You know, see, Satan is, is real and is God's enemy, and he's attempting to, to rule and set up a, a false kingdom that's supposed to kind of be kind of like the antithesis of, of God's kingdom. Now, we know that, that God is way more powerful than Satan, and the only reason Satan is even around is because God allows it, but yet Satan, in the meantime, even in God's allowance, is trying to set up this rival kingdom. And he doesn't really care how you're in his kingdom as long as you're with him. So Jesus speaks of two paths uh, elsewhere in Scripture. And he says, you know, see, there's, there's one path, and it's broad, and it's wide, and it leads to destruction. And many people are that, are, that go down that path. And, but the, the one way, the one way to get to the kingdom of life, Jesus is narrow. See, Satan is the ruler of those who would, who would choose against God. I hear the words of John elsewhere, 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And a little later, Jesus' half-brother uh, James would say, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James, that's in James 4.4. 4. You see, the Bible is consistently contrasting these two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. So the question for us this morning is, where do we belong? See, Jesus came to break the, the yoke of darkness over us. So Christian, are you trying to live both ways? Are you trying to have one foot in the kingdom of darkness and one foot in the kingdom of light? See, Isaiah would be saying, look, you can't have it both ways. Jesus came and destroyed the yoke of darkness. He destroyed that. This is why Paul could say, Galatians 5.1, he would say, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Jesus rescues us from sin to freedom. See, we no longer need to sin anymore because Jesus has freed us from our need to sin. So therefore, we're free. And sin no longer is to have any dominion over us. So we're to live in our freedom and not, 
need to, I guess, and, and for not need to, to sin and pursue that life of darkness anymore. Now, there's some here, maybe this morning, that, that you feel this slavery and this trap of sin. And what, and, and you know, like, no matter how much I try to get, get rid of this sin, it's just clinging to me, and it has me, has me trapped, and I can't get out. What you need to do is to cry out to Jesus for deliverance, for freedom. And that's why Jesus came, is to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Would you cry out to him, for he's the only one who can do that. You can't do it on your own. Jesus is the one who can do it. So the first reason Isaiah gives us for why God's people can rejoice is God's deliverance. The second reason that he gives us to rejoice rejoice is God's peace. You'll see this in in verse 5. He writes... For every boot of tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, what's going on here is God is taking the warrior's ability to make war and burning it. He's destroying the, their ability to, to create violence. And when you think about Isaiah's time and just kind of the, the climate that, I'm talking, that I've been talking about fairly consistently today, it, it, this would have meant a whole lot to them because they were feeling this, this threat of, of war. But we also know uh, uh, for us that we live in a time kind of like Isaiah where we kind of feel the constant threat of war as well. But when, we, when we're thinking about peace in the Old Testament, at its heart is the, is the Hebrew word shalom. You know, actually, that's a, that's a greeting in Hebrew. They'd often tell each other shalom. And in the titles of the king that we read, we're told that Jesus is the prince of peace or shalom. So shalom is this idea of, of wholeness completeness and peace. In other words, that when we are in a time of shalom, our, our relationships with, with God is right, our relationships with each other are correct, and our relationship with creation is the way that it's supposed to be. In other words, it, it should remind us of the Garden of Eden. So, so when God's talking about, about peace here, what he's talking about is this time of shalom where everything is going to be perfectly in relationship with each other. So during Isaiah's time, you know, this war was so constant, they would be thinking, oh man, God's going to come, he's going to destroy all this war, and we're going to have, finally, we're going to have a time of peace. You know, our nation at this time is at war in two countries, um, having the threat of ISIS, attacked by, by terrorists, so we also are, are under this state of, of war. However, we shouldn't enter into war for, for war's sake, but rather for peace. You know, Jesus himself, he, he told us that we'd be experiencing war. He says this in Mark 13, 7 through 8. He says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You know, so we shouldn't be surprised when we, we hear of war and, and wars are going on. Jesus told us that we should expect that. But rather, we should long for that eternal reign of peace that Isaiah is prophesying here. Uh, Jesus says, John 18, uh, 36 and 37 says, my answer, my, Jesus answered, this is the Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
So Jesus here is in his trial with, with Pilate and is explaining, like, look, my kingdom isn't like an earthly kingdom, which expands through war and through violence. But rather, my kingdom, the way that it's going to expand, the way that it's going to grow is through truth. And for truth is more powerful than any weapon. Uh, a Soviet scientist, uh, Andrei Sharkovov, if those of you guys who remember the Soviets, uh, the Soviets, uh, he was the, one of the scientists who was behind their creation of the atomic bomb. And he used to think, he used to say, like, I, I used to think that the most powerful weapon that is out there was the bomb. But now the most powerful weapon, that what I consider the most powerful weapon, is the truth. Winston Churchill, the famous British statesman, once said that the truth is so dangerous it oftentimes is guarded by a bodyguard of lies. You see, nations rise and fall depending on their military might. Yet Jesus is saying, look, this isn't the way that my kingdom is going to work. This isn't the way that my kingdom is going to expand. It's rather going to expand through the declaration of truth. You know, it's incredible when you think about, like, all the different ways that, that Jesus could have expanded the kingdom. Like, he very well could have chosen to, to come in and bring in all of his heavenly hosts to expand his kingdom, but rather he chose the truth. In particular, he chose to embody the, tr- the truth in himself. Jesus says, John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is saying, like, if one's going to come and be at, at peace with God, our, which is our deepest need, it is only through him. See, Jesus, as God's truth, is God's method of, of building his peace. Paul explains Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A little later, Romans 5, 8, 8 through 10, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by, the, by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You know, Paul is explaining that humanity's biggest need is a right relationship with God. You see, when one is in the kingdom of darkness, it's, it's not enough that, that we are that we are sinning, but we're actually God's enemies. We were, in a sense, we were at war with God. So we were at war against God and were considered God's enemies attacking this kingdom of life. But, but this is the scandal of the gospel, is that Jesus didn't come and die for, for God's allies, but rather he crossed over to enemy lines and died for God's enemies. I mean, that's, that's what Paul's explaining here. See, we were at war with God, and Jesus came and died on our behalf so that we could have peace with God. So here we are, fully deserving of God's wrath, and Jesus is coming over and taking that, that bullet for us. The Bible talks, uses this word, and Paul uses it here in, in Romans, this word of being reconciled. And this idea of, of being reconciled is this putting back together of two competing, two warring parties. Uh, for example, think about like two magnets, right? Like if you try to put together two magnets of the same pole, what happens? Well, you can't ever quite get them together. Like every time you try to get them together, they, they, they miss or, or they're, that, that force is so strong they can't go back together. 
Now, now, if you reverse the magnets and you reverse the polarity of them, what happens? They, they, can, get, they can get put together. They can be reconciled. That's, that's what, that's what the, the biblical word means. It means that those two things, those two opposing forces that were pushing against each other can now be put back together. And that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus does for us on the cross. He puts us, he reconciles us back to God. So this future peace that Isaiah's thinking of and prophesying here isn't just limited to peace with God, but also an eternal kingdom of peace. See, the book of Revelation is devoted to this, where Satan and all of his allies and all of his minions go, go to war against the Lamb. And Jesus, Jesus defeats all the forces of Satan, and God's, and God's peace reigns supreme. So this is so Isaiah is not just thinking of okay the peace that that God brings to us in Christ but also the peace that we are going to have in eternity. So the third reason so we we've seen two reasons so far that that God has given us to rejoice. The first one is that we have uh, God's deliverance. The second one is that we have God's peace, and the last one is the third one is God's king. So the third reason that God, that Isaiah gives us to rejoice in verse 6 and 7 is that is God's king. We are told to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So God is giving Israel their king and who's going to be the ruler over this kingdom of light that he's been talking about and delivers us from the oppressors and establishes God's peace. A child will be born. You know, in part this refers to King Hezekiah, but Ultimately, it refers to Jesus. There is no way that a mere human being could be called everlasting father or, or mighty God. And also that the, of this, of his government and of peace, that there will be no, no end. No mere mortal, no mere man could do that. So the question is, how is God going to have a human king in the line of David reign forever? Well, the answer God gives to that question is why we celebrate Christmas. He becomes a man in the line of of David. And this birth of Jesus is the one that we are told that this child is born. See, God sends an army of angels to announce this to shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, we celebrate Christmas then for for God's king has come. And, And what kind of king is God giving us? Well, Isaiah explains who this king is through these different titles that we have in verses 6 and 7. And these titles not only explain Jesus' first coming, but also his second. So he calls this king Wonderful Counselor. So you know, what's, it, what's in view with this title is the wisdom of Christ. You know, if one wants to know the, the wisdom and counsel and what it is that God wants, one has to know this king. You know, we are told in the New Testament, Jesus, uh, in, in talking to the Pharisees, says, like, look, the, the queen of the south, the queen of, she- the queen of Sheba, would come and rebuke you because there is one far wiser than Solomon who is here. Paul would say that Jesus is the wisdom of God. So if we're going to know what it is that we're to do, we are to know this wise king. 
We're also told that he is mighty God. Now, Israel's envisioning this king as a divine warrior. Mighty is a military term in, in Hebrew, meaning like valiant warriors. So, for example, think of like David's mighty men. You know, Joshua encountered a pre-incarnate, a pre-incarnate Jesus just before the battle of Jericho, sees this divine warrior coming at him and falls on his face. And John sees Jesus returning as this warrior in Revelation chapter 19. I invite you to turn there with me. So Revelation 19, we're going to look at verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his, throne, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, John's picture of, of Jesus here isn't just this some cute and cuddly Jesus, but rather this, this fierce, dangerous warrior who's coming to destroy God's enemies and build his kingdom. So Jesus' second coming is a time when he's going to come and establish God's kingdom permanently and reign supreme over all. So Isaiah calls, calls this king, he calls him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Eternal Father. Now, i got to admit, this one is a bit confusing because we're like, okay, Jesus isn't God the Father, so are we going to end up as heretics here before, the, you know, before our day is done? So what in the world is Isaiah meaning? Well, the first thing is Isaiah isn't trying to give us a lecture on the Trinity, but rather he's thinking of Jesus as, as king, and, and his role as king, he calls him eternal father, kind of meaning like protector and provider. For his people, much like a father would protect and provide for his children. In our, in our terms, probably a term we're more comfortable with would be like calling him the good shepherd. Meaning that he's going to be our protector and provider in this kingdom. Isaiah also calls him the prince of peace. You know, we just got done talking about peace, but he's not just... Again, he's not just talking about the peace that he comes to bring with God, but also this eternal kingdom of peace. This is why he can call him the, the Prince of Peace. And also, if in Isaiah, we're told that this king is going to be of the, the line of David. Now if, you, now, if you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is promised by God that one of his descendants is going to, to reign forever over his kingdom. And Jesus is born in the line of David and is that promised king. So we're told that Jesus' kingdom is going to be everlasting. There will be no end to the kingdom. And this kingdom will be marked with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So we just finished celebrating Jesus' first coming during Christmas. And what a time of the year to remember when, when Jesus came and, and began 
God's kingdom. However, the, the first advent should also remind us that we should be praying and longing and, and waiting for Jesus' second return, his second advent. So we long for Jesus to return. You know, when Jesus came the first time, it was to, to bring us peace through truth. But in his return, he's going to establish his, his kingdom by destroying God's enemies and, and, and building this kingdom of light. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31 through 33, When the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will sep- separate the people one from another as a shepherd shepher- separates the sheep from the goats. We are told in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus, he, he returns to judge the living and the dead. So when Jesus returns, he's going to separate those who are his and those who are of, of his enemy. See, there's going to be no middle, middle ground here. So this passage kind of falls to us at an opportune time. You know, whereas we, we can look to the past because it was just a couple days ago and remember the first advent, we can also look to the, to the future new year and, maybe, and be thinking and praying that, Jesus, would you, would you come this year? Would this, be the, would this be the time when you come and build your kingdom fully? So Christian, let us, let's play, let us pray with, with John that Jesus would come quickly. So, so, so Isaiah here has given us three reasons to, to rejoice. One is for God's deliverance. One is for, for God's peace. And, and the third is for God's king. But why does God do any of this? Well, it's for his glory. You know, Isaiah closes this section with this phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So why does God give all, his people all these things to rejoice in? Well, it's God's zeal for his namesake. You know, so throughout this passage, God has been the one who has been acting. God is the one who delivers. God's the one who, who brings in peace. God's the one who, who sends in the king. And God's the one who shines this light in the middle of darkness. So what are we doing in all these verses? Well, nothing. See, you and I can't contribute one iota to God's salvation from beginning to end. Everything God does first and foremost, is for his own glory. It's his primal motivation. It's his first motivation is himself. It's his own namesake. And therefore we can, as it states in verse 3, we can rejoice. We can have, we, can, we are to rejoice and to be glad uh, in, in God because of his actions in building his kingdom. See, let me kind of help you understand this, because this maybe doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, okay, how can God's pursuit of his glory include our salvation? Now, some, a lot of you guys are, are farmers and, and ranchers, and I know that you guys have irrigation ditches that, that go through your guys' field. And just so you know, there's, there's kind of one back by our house, and many times we'll, we'll be out walking, walking our dogs back there. But the main reason that a person has an irrigation ditch is to irrigate a field, is to put water in a field so that crops can grow. However, wild animals, such as deer or, or uh, dogs or whatever it happens to be, enjoy that the water, the life-giving water, especially in northeast Colorado where it can be really dry. And, and not, so not only is it benefiting your crops, but it's also benefiting some of these other animals and these other life forms. So even though something has a main purpose, other people can derive benefit from it. And it's like that with God's glory. God's pursuit of his own glory, and, and we are, get to get caught up in that with him. 
So God is, God is seeking his own glory, and, and that's the tra- trajectory, the, the end game for all things. But we get to get caught up in that. And so we are, and we are able to rejoice in that because that's the greatest purpose that he could give us is to be caught up in his glory. So Isaiah is saying, like, when God accomplishes this, when God delivers his people, he gives his people peace, he sends his king, my people must rejoice. I've given them joy. For example, our Christmas carol, Joy to the World, that we just sang not too long ago, we sing, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. It's an opportunity to rejoice. And so we're to rejoice in the king that, that God has given us. And so therefore, this, this prophecy of Isaiah is a call for, for all of us to draw together and re- rejoice in the kingdom that God is bringing. So the reason that God brings forth his salvation here is that there's a lack of worship of him. There's a lack of, of joy, and God's desire is to give us joy and every reason to rejoice. And, and we worship God in our enjoyment of him and of his great salvation. So Christian, let's, let's rejoice. Let's rejoice for our, our king has come and we have been delivered and given peace. Now, we're going to go to the Lord here in prayer. And, and maybe just this morning, you, you might want to just think about some of the things that, that God has done uh, in, in your lives and in your hearts that you can rejoice over. Or, or maybe you're here this morning and, and you're realizing like, you know what, I'm still living in this kingdom of darkness and I need to be delivered. And if that's you, would would you take this time and and cry out to to God to deliver you from that? So let's go to the Lord. Let's have a few moments of silence before him. Jesus, we do thank you for coming to to reign, to build your your Father's kingdom, to giving us peace, delivering us from sin, from Satan, from the world. Jesus, we we do praise and we thank you that you have given us a reason to have joy. And Lord, I do pray that we'd be a people marked by joy because you have given us every reason to be joyful. God, I do pray that we would continue to, to be delivered from those, those sins that maybe have, have trapped us in the past, that we would have that, that deliverance in our hearts. And Lord, I do thank you just for this morning, just for a chance to, to reflect upon your second coming. And we do pray that you would come quickly. In your name we pray. Amen.